Sober in the city, real life, real addiction, real recovery. Call in now from all over the USA, 1-800-SOBER-05. Welcome back. Here's your on-air sponsor, Debbie Strand. This is Sober in the City, brought to you by Believe Treatment Center. Believe Treatment Center understands and treats all forms of addiction. Call now, 1-855-874-2354, or visit believetreatmentcenter.com. Advisors are standing by to tell you how they can help and how your insurance can pay for it. I'm Debbie Strand with Sober in the City, here to tell you about how I got sober and how I'm maintaining my sobriety one day at a time. We're also talking about life issues. We all have them. Whether you're in recovery, you want to be, maybe you should be, maybe you just found out your father's having an affair on your mother. We all have life issues and we still deal with this life one day at a time. Call us, 800-SOBER-05. Tell me what's going on with you, how you're staying sober. Maybe you didn't stay sober. Call me, 800-SOBER-05, and visit us on the website at SoberInTheCity.com and listen live on the Sober in the City app for Apple Android devices. And if you or someone you love needs to get into a detox, rehab, needs an intervention, a recovery coach, give me a call, 800-SOBER-05. I am here to help. Just give me a call. Let me know that you're listening to the show and what you're getting out of it. We're going to talk about doing the work of a program. We're talking about 12-step recovery. It's not the only way, but it was the way that I've gone through and the way I'm maintaining my sobriety. What you can expect and how it works for others and how it can work for you too, if you honestly try. So the work of the program. Recently, we talked about steps one, two, and three. Maybe we can talk about how the rest of them work now. Steps four and five seems to be where everyone runs away. It's not that big of a deal. Everyone gets scared, and I did too. I thought I was going to come out on the other side, some washed down, wimpy version of myself, and like I was going to be someone else when I got to the other side. But I'm still me. I still have my personality. I still have my sense of humor. I still have my strength, and I could still be tough. But I found out eventually that I could be soft, loving, and compassionate too. And this was never the case before because it was never safe to show that side of me. And through recovery and through this process, I've learned where and when I'm safe and how and when I can be vulnerable without being in danger. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't get hurt, but I also have the skills today to understand that a hurt feeling isn't going to kill me. Perhaps a relapse trying to mask a hurt feeling may kill me. So I got that straight. I lived for a year and four months with no program. I stopped putting stuff in my body, alcohol, drugs, but I wasn't in the program yet. So I've had the experience of being sober, clean, without a program, and I've had it with a program. And I think that's so valuable for me to share with people 
what the differences were. Because for me, since I did the work of a 12-step program and I've done so much more work on myself, life's gotten a lot better. And more importantly to me, I'm more comfortable with myself. You know, whether I accomplish anything or become anything is regardless of just being comfortable being me. I was always uncomfortable. As the literature describes, I was the restless, irritable, discontented person. And today, when I get uncomfortable, I know there's something going wrong. I'm most likely in the wrong company in the wrong place, or I'm procrastinating something that I'm supposed to be doing. Step four was simply a history lesson. And in looking back, it's not that frightening. It's lost power over me. I talk in rehabs and I tell people about writing a fourth step and they want to see it. And I've brought it in and I've thrown it in the middle of the room. Whereas when I was writing a fourth step, I used to lock it in my car and hide it under my mattress as if anyone cared. Today, it's in my office on the shelf. No big deal. It doesn't matter. Call me 800-SOBER-05 and share your experience with me. We're going to go to Tim is calling from Santa Clarita, California. Hi, Deb. Tim, welcome to Sober in the City. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Uh, You know, you hit a lot of good points there. And uh, one of them is I never thought I could have a good time without booze or, you know, or, or, or drugs. And I, as far as I was concerned, when I first came in, you know, to the, to the program, as they say, is fun days are over. You know, it's not going to be fun anymore. How do I enjoy life sober? And Another thing that I came to realize being sober, and this is where I was like, because I, first coming in, I wasn't thoroughly convinced that I was an addict and, and an alcoholic. And the writing was on the wall for me, though, and I knew that I had to stay sober for at least, I, was, I kept hearing in the room, uh, stay sober for a year, and if you're not happy, we'll refine your misery, and you can go drink. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, so, you know, I was like, okay, that sounds fair enough. You know, I can, <laughs> I, I can do this for at least a year. And, um, and then what happened was around 90 days, you know, I think maybe we don't talk about it a lot in the rooms is that, you know, our bodies begin to heal, our brains begin to heal. And then my thinking goes into overdrive. And this is my disease, my thinking, my lack of faith, and resolve. I never had, lack of power was, is, my, is my dilemma, and resolve was ne- something I never had. You know, I was always a great starter, but a lousy finisher. And so what the steps do for me, which is, you know, going into the step. I'm sure you've seen it, Debbie. And, you know, I, we, we see a lot of, I call it the three-step cha-cha. You know, people come in, do the first and second. They get, we get on our knees and we do the third. And they kind of grasp that concept a little bit about, you know, God's will. But until we put that into an action program, it's not going to sustain us forever. I mean, some people can do it. They'll, they may stay sober for a year, two years. But until we got we to... Gotta, put a light on what, why we drank. I had to focus on why I drank, pull it out of the closet, put some light on it, 
talk about it and then get rid of it. And, you know, one thing too is it, it, Debbie as an alcoholic and I think men have this a little worse, you know, it's, I just was always in denial of what my real feelings were. I didn't even think I had feelings. I, it, it never dawned on me how much stuff bothers me until I got sober. I think that's why, you know, if the light goes on for you in this program, what tends to happen is we walk around the first, you know, 120 days causing uh, chaos and then apologizing immediately afterwards. And although this can be very frustrating and sometimes can be very hurtful and um, disconcerting, I, I think it is for some people, it, it, the light is come on that they need to make amends immediately after they've hurt somebody or done something wrong. So going back to the fourth step, I tell people, because I'm, I'm not a big book thumper. Because all alcoholics and addicts are have a different level of the damage they've done to their brain. And I don't think it's fair to put, you know, everyone's different. And a guy who's maybe suffering from wet brain, brain downtown at the Los Angeles Mission, and he says, hey, I want to get sober, I can't hold him to the same standard as, you know, a UCLA graduate you know, who's in an addiction with a different drug per se. So I, I'd never have the heart to tell somebody, Oh, you've done the fourth step wrong. I would never say that. Mm -hmm. I would simply ask that they follow the guideline, which is in the big book, which is the three columns. And another thing I've found, Deb, I've, I've, wor I've been working with, and I'm, and I'm working with some new guys right now and I'm blessed in that area of my sobriety is, I mean, this is just my experience, Debbie, is that really the average alcoholic addict has like three resentments or three things in their life. Maybe it's something that happened to them. Maybe they were raped as a child or uh, they uh, were beat up by their father, by their stepfather a lot or who, whatever, whatever it may be. Somebody they trusted in their childhood hurt them. Um, that really the, the average out guy or person, woman coming in has about three resentments, maybe five that they could actually drink over. And so it's important that we get the light, pull those out of the closet and get the light on those three topics and let them know that, Hey, we all, all of, a lot of us suffered these exact same things that you did. And what's funny is you said you keep your fourth step and your fifth step or your fourth step on your desk. Now it's no big deal because <laughs> you, you, you realize now that, Hey, it happened. Those are life issues that all these things happen to all of us at some point or another in our lives. Now for me is my, my father was out of control. He wasn't a drunk, but he must've been raised by one because he was very, um, strict and he's, you know, beat the crap out of me. And then he left the home when, uh, you know, I was nine, 10 years old and just one divorce after the other and different families, different stepsisters and brothers and just a lot of chaos. Mm -hmm. My mom jumped in there too with that. So, um, it made it the perfect environment to raise an, 
a mini, you know, a baby alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so what the fourth step did, fourth step did for me, and, you know, it's like halfway through, you know, of course I wrote a novel, you know, and <laughs> my sponsor stopped me and said, okay, you're done. Because guess what? What? We all did these things. We're all selfish, self-centered, and we can self-justify our actions, our drunkenness, and our drug use because of this childhood that we had. Tim, you know, I just wanted to bring up, I don't, I don't think I made it uh, clear what a fourth step is. A fourth step is where we make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And what we actually do is list the resentments and write about those. And then we get to turn it around and see what our part in it is and how we actually get something started. And oftentimes what I found was uh, the way that I got the ball started was I had expectations of others and I didn't express clearly what I had wanted in a situation. And then a lot of people get really afraid of the part that's called sex inventory. And I just want to let everyone know when you write your sex inventory, you look at your relationships and you see where you were selfish, dishonest, inconsiderate, where had you hurt someone? Where had you unjustifiably aroused suspicion or jealousy? And was it selfish or not? It's not actually about writing what you did in a sexual act, because I think a lot of people run from that because of their fear of being shamed. I would agree. I, yeah. I mean, who wants to talk about their sex <laughs> escapades? <laughs> no. Right. No, and we don't, we don't have about. to, we don't have to, you know, we're allowed to have boundaries. And I think that's something that I try to teach my sponsees as we're going along is, is how to have boundaries and how to talk about things in a way that they feel safe. You know, I mean, I'm not going to put their stuff on the street. Sure. They can tell me anything, but they don't have to. And I want them to feel that safety net so that they know that they can share with me what they need. And I like the way you brought up, um, um, there's only a few resentments that are really going to send us back out to drinking. And the other side of it is when I have uh, sponsees writing about things that are not going to make them go drink, things that they did in childhood, uh, you know, Billy pushed them off the swing and they hit him with a brick. And it, it kind of shows a pattern of how they reacted as a child that they're still reacting today as adults in a, in a program. Absolutely. So I think, you know, all of it is valid. And like you said, and I agree wholeheartedly, everybody's experience is going to be different. I had to write a lot of stuff in my fourth step. The, the way that it was shown to me really helped me drag things out of me because I didn't see where I was being dishonest. You know, and I needed to see the dishonesty right. in my resentments. I really yes. couldn't see it. So I was thankful and, and God was good. God put me on the path where these people really had this this layout way beyond what was in the book, but it still searched out the selfishness, the dishonesty, the self-seeking and the fears, which is the bottom line. We want to get down to the fears. What are we afraid of? What is the fear in each resentment? And that's what makes us react. Correct? Yes. And for me, especially, it's the fear-driven self-justification. Because uh -huh. I'm a master of self-justification. Oh, justifying and rationalization. Yeah. Those were my yeah. good friends. I mean, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can drug use and why it's okay and why I can drain the bank account because I work hard and I've had a rough life and I deserve it. I deserve it. it. <laughs> okay, Tim, thank you so much. We sure appreciate you being here and hang on the line if you like. I'm going to go to okay. Pat. Pat's in... Uh, I don't know if you go by Pat or Patrick. You're in West Palm Beach, Florida. Pat, welcome to Sober in the City. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Did you take a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself? Were you actually fearless? I wasn't fearless. I was afraid through the whole thing. Yeah, no, I think I was a little terrified, but that, I think, was caused by the propaganda that's spread by people, stuff that people say about it, about how terrifying it is. And I found that most of the people that were saying those things were people that hadn't done the step yet, <laughs> hadn't been through that step. You know, it was it was their fear that they were perpetrating instead of any kind of actual reality. I mean, far too many people treat the fourth step like a funeral when it's more <laughs> like a birthday, you know? I love that. Yeah, it's like a birthday, really. It's, it's a new beginning, and that's where my, you know, my spiritual stuff started to, to grow. I mean, one, two, and three were a lot of, um, like, ego awareness steps for me to find out where I am, put me in check, and, and allow me to find my higher power and find something greater than myself. And then when my, my spiritual growth started was on my fourth step. And I wasn't too afraid of, of writing it because, you know, most of those things, any of the stuff that I had to write had to do with someone else, more or less. In, in one case or another, someone else was involved. So my secrets were already shared with someone. They knew, you know, somebody blamed me or I blame myself or one way or another, there was someone else involved. So the the scary part for me was going to be sharing it. You know, that's where, that's where my fear kind of came in. And my sponsor alleviated that, you know, real early. He told me, you know, cause I started writing like a book, you know, I started writing my whole life story and he's like, no, this isn't what you need to do. What we need to do is just create the inventory of, and find the, the patterns of my emotional dysfunction and my, you know, behavioral dysfunction so that I can see them clearly. It was more like, um, it's like a discovery from the outside in. You know, when I started writing it, I started writing all the superficial stuff that I would tell anybody, you know, that I would talk with the policeman about because I could, because there was nothing to it. It had no real meat. It wasn't until, you know, I'd been writing for a little while that I started to gain a little confidence to be able to delve into myself a little bit further and be a little more honest and a little more self-searching in my inflection to to find out what the truth was behind that whole, you know, it's, that's what it is. It's finding the truth about the lie. That's what the whole thing is about. <laughs> I love to it. Look into me, <laughs> to look into me and find out what my truth is about what my lie was. <laughs> and I think that in, and when I started sharing it with my sponsor, that's where my self-esteem started to grow. And that's where my objectivity came from. That's where I, I began to actually be able to take a look at myself from an objective point of view when I could lose my, my false sense of reality, when I could lose my false self, the one that I created for every scenario that I was ever involved in. You know, wherever I was, I could be that chameleon. I could snap into whoever I had to be to do what I had to do to get what I wanted. And I could stand outside of that for a second and look at it and see that, you know, none of that was real. And then I had to come to grips with some self-acceptance to find out that I'm okay with me as I am. You know, and I can grow from where I am at that moment. So I don't, I don't, the fear part of it, I think, was just because I was so used to hiding the truth that exposing it was, was, what, was what I was afraid of. There was some sense of I'm going to be caught, or I'm going to be punished, or there's going to be some kind of consequence if I do this. And I couldn't have been further from the truth. I like how you talk about as your writing went on, the writing matured. And I found that too. And as I was just discussing with Tim, as I was writing about things from my childhood that really weren't going to send me out drinking like Billy pushing me off the swing when I was a kid, that gave me the chance to write about things that were kind of innocuous and then 
I would, as my writing matured, I was getting into the family and current relationships and things that happened that were closer to the life that I was living right then. So that get and, and about my in my family. I mean, it was very important to understand and master those resentments with my family because I didn't want to live like that. I wanted my family back in my life, which I do have today. So I think it was important to start in those younger years where the things quote unquote, didn't matter so much, but yet set that pattern for me and gave me that chance to mature in the program. And as I was writing that fourth step, I had to keep reminding myself, I'm not doing step nine yet, where we make an amends to those people that we're writing those resentments about. So I had to just concentrate and keep reminding myself to stay in the moment, to stay where I was, and to do the task that was before me. Patrick, thanks so much for sharing your experience with us. I'm going to go to Chuck in Knoxville, Tennessee. Chuck, welcome to Sober in the City. Can you share your experience about doing your step four? Oh, absolutely. Uh I guess I may be a little bit sicker than others, but... Uh, <laughs> Welcome to the uh, crew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the reason I say that is uh, my first time I wrote a four-step, I was in treatment, and I had no idea what I was doing, and I wrote a couple of words uh, per question, and then uh, that didn't go over very well, and then I... Uh, wrote a second four-step, and I dug a little deeper, so I probably wrote uh, a sentence or two, and uh, with about 18 months uh, clean time, uh, I asked uh, this young lady, uh, I know what uh, kind of uh, feedback I'll get from that, but I asked this young lady if she would sponsor me, and uh, she agreed, and uh, she told me that uh, Says I don't know the difference between, uh, or I don't know how to teach you how to be a man, but I do know the difference between right and wrong, and we'll work on it. I like that. So, you know, uh, I I bought me a uh, green and gold workbook from Narcotics Anonymous, and she told me there there are no yes or no answers in the book anywhere. If it's yes, it's yes what. If it's no. It's no what, and uh, I started writing, and we started working, or I started working, and uh, I tell you what, uh, I I started writing, and when I got to the part, it says searching and fearless. All right, well, I had to figure out what I was searching for, and then I had to be fearless, which meant to me, I had to be unafraid. And then I got down to the moral part, and I'm thinking, well, I don't have any morals. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I didn't, you know, because I, I, just, I didn't care. Right. And uh, I kept writing, kept digging, kept crying, kept throwing my books, cussing, pitching fits, calling my sponsor six, eight, ten times a day, what about this? What about that? And, uh, she just, she, she was so patient. She said, just keep writing. You know, if you get tired, put your pen down and pick it back up and keep writing. And uh, then we got down to the feelings. And, uh, oh, my God, Debbie, I don't see her or call her. And she said, well, how do you feel? Well, I'm this way. No, that's not a feeling. How do you feel? And I guess it took 
a couple of months for me to understand and identify a feeling, you know, and uh, I wrote about it, that it kept rotting, and I kept digging, and the guilt and shame and the fear, it just, it was overwhelming, but uh, in my relationships, I didn't realize until, I don't know, maybe a couple of years ago, that Whoever I come in contact in my life on a daily basis, I have a relationship with. You know, I, I honestly have uh, a relationship with the cashier down at the convenience store that I uh, go in every day. Absolutely. You know, I know their name. They know my name. Uh, they know what kind of cigarettes I smoke, you know, and we'll just chit-chat, and we have a relationship. You know, and... Uh, I have a relationship with my current sponsor, but, you know, my employers, my co-workers, you know, just whoever uh, I'm with, I have a relationship with. And it took me a long time to figure that out. And, uh, but back to the fourth step, uh, I kept writing. And uh, finally, when I had it finished, I went uh, over to my sponsors, you know, and I started we started going over question for question, word for word. And when we finished, I mean, I was a nervous wreck. And my sponsor looked at me and says, And? You think you're that unique? <laughs> Is that it? <laughs> you mean you're the only one that did that? That's all you got. I thought you were a badass. <laughs> you know, you know and, and uh, she shared with me things that she did. You know, I mean, things that she did to get those, I hadn't done yet. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, uh, although she would share, you know, standing behind the tree, uh, taking a shower, pretending nobody could see her on the other side. <laughs> you know, it's all uh, high and stuff. But truly, my fourth step, when I did the fifth step, I felt so much freedom, so much freedom. The weight of the world was lifted off of me. I had no more fear, no more resentment. I mean, uh, I wasn't carrying all of this garbage around with me. Because somebody else knew. And I trusted them that they wasn't going to tell anybody. And if they did, I really didn't care. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great, great, it's a great feeling to accomplish that. Chuck, thank you for being with us here on Sober in the City. When we come back, more about doing the work of the program, what you can expect, and how it's worked for others, and how it can work for you too, if you honestly try. 800 Sober 5 Sober in the City will be right back. And just because your stories might not be as bad as someone else's, doesn't mean you have to continue to hurt yourself. We'll be right back. I hurt myself today. To see if I still feel I focus on the pain The only thing that's real The needle tears a hole The old familiar sting Try to kill it all away but I remember 
everything What have I become? At Believe Treatment Center, we understand. We understand you are struggling. That's why our treatment nourishes mind, body, and spirit. We understand that recovery works differently for everyone. That's why we design individual treatment programs specifically for you. At Believe Treatment Center, we understand that it's not easy. That's why we offer a comprehensive scope of services, including nutrition, massage, chiropractic, and aftercare for you and even for your family. Believe Treatment Center is a 12-step friendly, state-of-the-art facility located in gorgeous Palm Beach County, Florida. We are experts in all types of addiction and recovery, and we are proud sponsors of Sober in the City. To find out more about our program and how your insurance may cover your treatment, call us today at 1-855-874-2354. That's 855-874-2354. 1-855-874-2354. Or visit BelieveTreatmentCenter.com. Believe Treatment Center. We understand. Are you a suffering addict or alcoholic? Is someone you know struggling with this disease? Let the Freedom From Addiction Foundation assist you with our acclaimed intervention and recovery coaching services. For a very affordable fee, we can set up and perform on-site interventions, ongoing treatment supervision, and personalized recovery and life coaching services. We are local, we are a nonprofit group, and we can work within your financial parameters by accepting most major credit cards and working with or without your insurance. Call today, 1-877-876-2329, Again, that's 1-877-876-2329. Recovery starts with one phone call. Call the Freedom From Addiction Foundation today.